So the reading this morning is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, verses 26 to 56. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if the people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read this. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon and the darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, They beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to the decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, And he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. 
And then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Thank you, George. Well, um, my uncle Ian uh, is a very quirky man. Uh, He's known in my family for his unfiltered comments. Like when he met Aisha for the first time, my lovely, shy girlfriend at the time. You should lose the nose ring. (laughs) We love Uncle Ian. He speaks his mind. Uh, Same goes when the uncomfortable topic of religion comes up. I remember one night I went round to my grandparents after I'd been at church and Uncle Ian was over. I must have had a go at, you know, saying something about what we looked at at church uh, because Uncle Ian came out. I can't stand the fact that Christians use a cross as their symbol. It's so morbid. I think he was wrong about the nose ring comment, but the cross comment... I think Uncle Ian has got it right, hasn't he? When Luke's gospel was first being circulated, the idea of putting a cross on your necklace would have been like wearing a decorative firing squad rifle. For the first believers, living under Roman rule, standing with Jesus meant standing with a man who died as a hated death row convict. It meant associating yourself and your family with the lowest of the low. And in lots of cases, it meant sticking your neck out for the same kind of treatment. What would drive so many otherwise normal, intelligent people to follow a crucified king? But that message of the cross has captured so many hearts right down to today. But it's still a fair fair question, isn't it? Why would you want to follow a crucified king. The scenes we just read about this morning confront us with the cruelty, the bloodlust, injustice of humanity. It'd be fair enough if you were wondering, do I really want to buy into a worldview that puts the worst of us on display? Uh, It's certainly popular enough to to focus on the happier aspects of the Christian message, Jesus' inspiring teaching and kindness, and to minimise the ugly day known as Good Friday. But the sheer amount of time and attention that the gospel writers devote to the cross tell me to leave the cross out is to cut the heart out of the whole thing. In Jesus' own words, to be his disciple is to take up your cross and follow him daily. Christianity has been so kind of historically normal in our culture, it's tempting to be shocked by the way, say, Christian views on sexuality are increasingly seen as outdated and even evil 
but we follow a crucified Lord. To stand with Jesus is to stand out from the crowd. Uh, It means owning that human ugliness that lurks inside all of us. It does involve hard choices. And I know that some of you have made sacrificial decisions just to be here today. The symbol of the cross for many today is a symbol of judgmentalism, guilt, exclusion. And yet for believers through history, it's proven to be the exact opposite. Luke is here to convince us today, whoever you are, wherever you're coming from, that this day of darkness and cruelty holds the key to the greatest treasure of all. Which is why we need to understand that the cross is more than a tragedy. That's point one in your leaflets. Uh, Let's come back to the scene at Luke chapter 23 verse 26. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus, the man who calmed a storm with a word, is now so weak that he can't even carry the instrument of his own death. Jesus, the innocent, the healer, stumbling under the weight of a cross. So the soldiers force someone else to carry it. It's a heart-wrenching moment. No wonder the women following him were moved to tears. I remember as a child coming home from school one day and crying on my parents' bed uh, because at school they'd shown a video that portrayed the crucifixion of Jesus uh, as a way of showing kind of how bad Good Friday would have been. My mum asked me what I found so upsetting about that video It was just so sad, so gory. It wasn't fair. But listen to what Jesus says to those loyal, horrified onlookers. In verse 28, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children. With the last bit of energy he's got, Jesus wants these women to know This is more than a tragedy. It's the beginning of Judgment Day. You'll see a footnote on verse 30 uh, telling you it's a quote from Hosea chapter 10. Uh, Jesus is drawing on an Old Testament picture of God's judgment to say, Days are coming when the world will experience what it's like when God gives people over to their own devices. And it's not a world you'd want kids to grow up in. And Jerusalem got a taste of it a few decades later in AD 70, when the Roman armies smashed the city, a terrible time to be alive. And when they flattened the temple, it was a very concrete signal that God was withdrawing his presence from the once holy city. The tree was dry. Because Jesus' death is more than unfair. God turned up in the flesh at his own temple and the people begged for his blood 
And that's not okay. So they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Back in Hosea's day, God's people Israel had long since turned their hearts away from the God who saved them from Egypt. Rejecting our maker isn't a new thing. Life was good and they got proud. They started sacrificing to the fertility gods of the nations around them. Not in God's temple, but on the hills and the mountains. And there's something terribly appropriate about this this image of them calling out to the mountains to save them as they topple down upon them. It's hopeless chaos. The emptiness of life without God shown for what it is. That's what the cross points to. People have said no thanks to God in the most decisive way. They've chosen political power and self-justifying religion instead. And God's judgment is coming. I've been trying to think of a modern day equivalent of Hosea 10, where God hands us completely over to the emptiness of our false gods. Maybe it's a day where the world is coming apart at the seams and we cry out, science, save us. But science in and of itself can only objectively show how bad the problem is. And so we call out, just give us some happiness. But eat, drink and be merry soon descends into health crises, addiction and violence. In the hours before his death, Jesus gave a window into what's really going on. The cross, it gives the expression to that human desire to cut God out of the world. And God is not okay with that. Jerusalem got a taste of that judgment in AD 70 as the temple fell. And the chaos and the cruelty of life today gives us a taste of what it will be like when the giver of life hands the world over to life without him forever. Jesus pauses on the road to his cross to challenge us. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Do you believe that there's a judgment to come? And do you think it's the most pressing issue in our world? The scary thing is, though we weren't there on Good Friday, in our own hearts, we all say no thanks to God. I'd prefer that you didn't intrude, don't we? God is deeply patient. He pleaded with Israel for centuries. He even turned up in person. But he cannot let the injustice and cruelty of our world go on forever. The day is coming where he will bring it to account. So if there's one thing I need to work out for myself, if there's one thing that we need to ensure for the next generation, it's how to be ready for that day. Which takes us to point two, paradise found in the midst of hell. 
Uh, a few years ago, I was helping my father-in-law with some home renovations, you know, as a dutiful son-in-law. I helped him load up the trailer and take it out to the dump near Adelaide Airport. Uh, I remember getting there to that dump. Uh, it was one of those murky summer days, uh, grey skies, that weirdly electric air. It's quite a sensory experience, the dump, that, that rotten smell, do you know what I mean? It kind of, you kind of can't escape the smell of all the unwanted stuff in the air. Um, the birds are circling. In that afternoon, there are a couple of kind of teams doing some serious loading of stuff in. Uh, and every now and then, they'd be shouting out to each other these warnings cutting through the still grey air. And my father-in-law stopped as we were unloading and said, Jamie, this is what the cross would have been like. And it stuck with me ever since because... I think he was onto something. Now let's, let's try to put ourselves there at the place of the skull, the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem where they took criminals to die. Can you imagine the stench of the shallow, unmarked graves of all the crucified nobodies, the birds circling, the sound of hammer on nail, And the rough voices shouting out, He saved others, let him save himself. Can you imagine the experience of when the darkness swept over the land at midday? If that's not unnerving enough, people coming out of the city start talking about something that happened at the temple the massive curtain that protected the way into the the very inner part of the temple where God promised to be present in an immediate sense. It's been torn down the middle. Something is wrong. Something otherworldly is going on. For a moment at least, all that is good in the world has been taken away. God's goodness in letting the sun shine on all people day in, day out. That everyday gift that we take for granted, gone. God's fatherly tenderness of coming down to meet with his flawed people in the temple, over. Jesus was right. As God's son hangs in the dark, judgment day is touching the planet. But in the very moment that hell overshadows our world, one person finds paradise. Luke pays a lot of attention to the two criminals with Jesus. Maybe they were Barabbas' accomplices. Uh, Whatever the case, to get crucified, you had to be pretty bad. One of them, bitter to the end, yells at Jesus, Come on, you Messiah. If you're so powerful, why don't you get us out of this mess? But the other evildoer has this amazing moment of clarity. He sees the sign on the cross, this is the king of the Jews, and he knows that it's true. Jesus, he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Those who have had near-death experiences uh, sometimes talk about the focus that it can bring. 
the things that really matter, the things that you had been wasting your time on, this death row criminal gets clear about who Jesus is and who he is. He knows he's getting the punishment he deserves. And hanging next to the king of the universe, he knows there's nothing he can do to impress him. All he can offer is a life of crime against God and mankind. All he can do is swallow his pride and gasp, Jesus, remember me. And the answer comes straight away, without conditions, without hesitation. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. If you've ever wondered like, what becoming a Christian involves, this is it boiled down. Acknowledging that deep down you don't have what it takes. And asking Jesus to somehow find a way to let you into his kingdom. And to a prayer that simple, that desperate and basic, Jesus says, yes. Paradise. I'm not sure what that word conjures up for you. In biblical terms, it's a word you might use to describe the Garden of Eden. That place where God and people live in a world of peace. No sin lurking, no judgment to come. All is well. That's where Luke is taking us. He leads us through this dark day to show us the gates of paradise cracking open at the cross because of the cross. That day when I cried on my parents' bed, I got the horror of the cross. I got the injustice, maybe even the guilt It took me another six or seven years to get what Luke is pointing out here. That Jesus' death is God acting in history to do something for us. Because at the cross, Jesus fulfills God's long promise of forgiveness through blood. There are lots of details that Luke could have included about that day. The ones he does include lead us to see that note of fulfillment. Jesus dying between two criminals reminds us in very concrete terms of Isaiah's Old Testament promise of a servant, an innocent one counted among the criminals to bring peace between people and God. Or in verse 34, when they divided his clothes by casting lots, the soldiers are unwittingly acting out Psalm 22, a psalm about the Messiah who suffers this deep humiliation but turns out to be praised as the king of all. This has been God's plan, his heart from the start. He sees us, his creatures, doing what we can to cut him out of his world. And he says, I'm going to come into this world as king. And I'm going to suffer and pour out my own blood so they can come to paradise and be with me again because I love them. It's true that hell 
touched our world on Good Friday. But who is being punished? Jesus, our King, faced that God-forsaken darkness so that you and I will never have to. You know how hard it is to forgive? Um, To take a trivial example, 19 out of 20 times in our house, it's Aisha who needs to forgive me. So let me be clear about that. But on the occasion where I feel that Aisha has done something that needs forgiving, let's say she uses the last bit of milk in the morning before I can make my coffee. Forget about the fact that I was meant to pick up the milk yesterday afternoon. Okay, but she says, oh, Jamie, I'm sorry. I I made a smoothie for later. I forgot that you were going to have a coffee now. And I nobly say, that's okay, Aisha. I forgive you. Even in a very silly example like that, it's still tempting to say later in the morning when the next thing goes wrong, well, maybe if I had my morning coffee... (laughs) I haven't actually forgiven, even in that very silly example. I choose a trivial one because the real ones are too painful, aren't they? When you really forgive, it costs you something because you choose to no longer hold a debt against somebody. And so every time you choose not to make the mean comment, or to harbour the bitter thought against the person, it hurts you. That's real forgiveness. And the cross shows us exactly how seriously God takes forgiving us. When Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them about the very people who are taking his life, it's not just a noble thing to say. He is actually experiencing the pain, the condemnation, the cost, so that they really can be forgiven. That's the kind of forgiveness we're talking about here. If you stand with Jesus, God will never hold your failures against you. And ironically enough, the image of judgment is also an image of that assurance, the temple curtain hanging in tatters. On the one hand, it's a picture of God withdrawing himself from the temple. But on the other, it's a picture of open access. There is no more barrier to God anymore because the cross means that even a criminal has a place in paradise itself with King Jesus forever. The cross, that morbid symbol, is a symbol of paradise one. I'm sure I've spoken here before about my grandpa, uh, Papa Dino. He loved this story about the criminal on the cross. Uh, He lived a a great life. He had an amazing family, including myself. Uh, An impressive footy career. But he was a self-described rebel when it came to God. He's someone who didn't put his trust in Jesus really until the last few years of his life. And this story of the criminal really resonated for him. If God can let someone like that in, 
Maybe he's got time for an old rebel like me. It was quite a surreal privilege uh, to get to pray with Papadino as the end of his life drew near. Uh, It was not an easy end for him. But it was amazing to hear him talk about how thankful he was that he had the opportunity to get to know Jesus before it was too late. If God can let someone like that in, maybe he's got time for an old rebel like me. He's not wrong. And he died knowing that paradise was one. Why follow a crucified king? Because his cross opened the door to paradise for rebels young and old. And that leaves us with just one thing to do. Point three, shelter in the shadow of the cross. That first Good Friday was such a dark day in every sense of the word, wasn't it? We see humanity in all its glory. The brutality of Rome, this is how they enforce peace. The utter weakness of Jesus' close friends, like where is Peter? And then there's the religious, the moral ones who knew Isaiah and Psalm 22 and all the rest. They're the ones cheering this whole thing on. The facade of goodness is very much off at this point. What an ugly day. But there are conspicuous bright spots. For every group that rejects Jesus, somebody stands out from the crowd. From the Romans, there's the centurion, someone who was officially involved in the crucifixion. After seeing what had happened, he praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. He couldn't side with Rome on this. After seeing how Jesus died, he knew he was innocent. Did he understand that Jesus died to save him? We don't know. But he is the first person to praise God for the cross in Luke's gospel, an irreligious Gentile soldier. Peter wasn't there, but Luke makes sure that we know that the women who had followed him from Galilee were While the rest of the crowd walks away sad, there's verse 49. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. They know Jesus well enough to stick around. And in that regard, they are braver than Peter. They watch his body laid in the tomb and go to prepare spices to help give him a burial fit for a king. And they end up being the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. But perhaps most surprising, someone from the religious elite stands out. By this point in Luke, the mention of a member of the council does not bring a positive thought to our minds. They're the ones who say they obey God and then push to have Jesus killed. But then there's Joseph. Luke honors him with quite the introduction a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Imagine the courage it must have taken 
for Joseph to walk back to Pontius Pilate and ask if Jesus' body could be taken down from the cross so he could bury him. I imagine it wouldn't have been every day that a victim of crucifixion would have a friend of means who would want to bury them in an unused tomb. I also imagine Pilate being not too happy seeing a member of this council that pushed him to act against his better judgment, coming back to ask for another favour. But Joseph knew that it wasn't right for Jesus to receive anything but a king's burial. In this dark day for humanity, from the Romans, there's, from the disciples, from the religious, people start coming forward and they begin to stand with this crucified king. I wonder if you can resonate with any of them. The irreligious centurion, the devoted women, or Joseph, who knows better than most that coming from a religious background does not mean all is well between you and God. Picture that day. On this side, you've got the three crosses, three men bleeding and suffocating, one called the King of the Jews. A terrible sight. On the other side, you've got the crowd, all walks of life, mocking, laughing, telling the Son of God just what they think of him. As we watch it all going down, I think we're meant to ask, which side would I rather stand on? And then we watch as one by one, people start changing sides. First, one of the criminals, forgiven. Then the centurion takes his stand beneath the cross. The women stand by, there's got to be more. Joseph approaches the cross. He can't be buried like a criminal. It will involve standing out from the crowd But there is no better place to stand than in the shadow of that cross. Safety on Judgment Day. Forgiveness. The peace of paradise. So here at the end of Good Friday, let me leave us with three questions. Question one. Do you believe that the cross is for all kinds of people? We see them coming forward and we should expect to see all kinds of people, religious, secular, outwardly good, outwardly bad, coming to church, responding to the cross. I don't know about you, but I know that in theory, but all too often I find myself pigeonholing people. Like, ah, that friend would never be interested. This passage is a wake-up call for me. Don't write people off. Even until the last second, Jesus holds out the hand of forgiveness and the most unlikely people will take him up. What a good reminder as Easter approaches. Who has God put in your life who you could extend an invitation to to come and hear about Jesus on Good Friday? Who knows how they might respond? Second question, do you believe that the cross is for all kinds of people even you? 
I don't know where you're at today, but it would be silly of me not to ask, is today the day you need to pray that basic prayer to Jesus and admit that you need his help? You might have been wrestling quietly with God for a long time. This might be all brand new. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, no matter how subtle your crimes or outrageous against God and humanity, you can walk out of here today completely sure of where you stand with God from here to eternity. And can I just add, take shelter in the cross while the sun is still shining. I had this really weird moment during the week where I walked out from writing this sermon on the darkness of Good Friday into this blissfully sunny kernel-like gardens afternoon, probably like we're about to do shortly. It made me think, God is so patient. He's letting the sun shine on everyone for another day. The doors of paradise are still open for all. But Good Friday is a reminder that one day the sun will fail once for all. We don't know how long, so take shelter now. Last question. Are you still in awe of the cross? Taking up your cross daily to follow Jesus is the best thing you'll ever do. But if you've been doing it for a while, you'll know it's not always easy especially in a world where the cross is not a symbol of popularity. If you know what I mean, let Luke slow you down to look at what happened on that first Good Friday. He's reminding you of what you're being saved from. He's showing you in painstaking detail the security that Jesus won for you. We need God to lead us ever deeper into the wonder of the cross. So remember today the peace of paradise that's yours because of Jesus. The cross tells me the big question, the big question to check the direction of my life. It's not to ask how work's going. It's not how many friends I have. It's not how much sleep I'm getting. It's this. Do I have peace with God? If the answer to that is yes, what more could I want? If I have peace with God, I have everything. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you today like that criminal. We acknowledge today for the first time or once again that we need your help. You know the ways that we've tried to live without you as king. Jesus, please forgive us. Thank you for dying to bring us into paradise. Please help us to revel in the peace that you won us at the cross today. Amen.